sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. first figure out like what's keeping you up at night what is stressing you out are you looking for somebody that can be reliable and tried and true and speak with a really reassuring voice or are you looking for somebody that can express that they're very creative and innovative in terms of approaching your problems and can be a partner in that way and I think it's that kind of personal branding that to quote Paul Witzlawick you can't not communicate And salespeople are sometimes unconsciously communicating what they stand for, their brands, their personal brands, as well as ideals and vision of the brands that they represent. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Margot Bloomstein. Margot is a brand and content strategy consultant, and she's the author of a very interesting book titled Trustworthy. How the Smartest Brands Beat Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap. Now, hearing that title, you might think that this episode is about branding and marketing. And Well, as I read Margot's book, it struck me that the same techniques that brands are using to connect and build trust with their buyers applies to B2B sellers as well. And applies to how you build your own personal brand as a trusted advisor for your buyers. So in this episode, we dive into three main elements of trustworthiness that Margot describes in her book. She calls these voice, volume, and vulnerability. And we'll talk about what each of those mean for individual sellers and how they connect and interact with their buyers. We also explore why humans trust humans and how to quantify trust. And then we dig into why abstraction is such a critical skill for sellers to develop. So lots of great information for you today. But before we get to Margo, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Margo, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am thrilled to be here. Well, thrilled to have you. Uh, we share publishers. Um, so... Always excited to have another page two author join me. Um, So tell us a bit about you. What sort of work do you do? I'm a brand and content strategist um, and uh, speak frequently on those topics and Mm -hmm. and write a lot about about trust, how brands can can build trust, earn trust, uh, do their part in contributing to rebuild some of our our social issues, societal Mm -hmm. issues around trust. Interesting, yeah. Well, it's yeah, it's funny. I sort of wrote somewhat about the role of business and sort of developing that in the wake of January sixth and 
Yeah, people really didn't want to engage on the topic uh, <laughs> on like places like LinkedIn and so on. It's like, yeah, don't don't uh, bring societal issues into into business. But it seems like that's changing somewhat, isn't it? Yeah, and I don't think that that is a. I don't think it's a tenable position from what different audiences and consumer groups want from business. Um, I also don't think that it is good business anymore. I don't think it's smart business. To, it, avoid, it, to avoid that. Right, right. I mean, the prevailing wisdom used to be that, that business has no place in politics. Business right. should stay out of politics. I, I think we've heard Mitch McConnell parrot that a bit, well, too. Well, other than the other fact he relies on business to fund his, his political party, but yes. Right, Well, right. both political parties, right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that in the wake of Citizens United, we've we've sort of ratified this idea that that business has a role in politics and money makes the world go round. But I think even stepping away from that, more and more consumers do want to know the the values of the organizations they support. They want to see if their values are reflected in those organizations. Right. And I think the the smartest most most authentic, if we want to, if we want to bandy about that buzzword, mm. the most authentic way for businesses to truly engage in the communities that they want to support right. is to pay attention to the issues that affect those communities. Well, and one of the prices of doing so is that you may you may alienate part of your customer base or what was formerly a customer base. Right. I mean, what you're saying is that this is interesting. I never really thought about that. Is that that increasingly companies can be put in a position where they sort of have to choose. They can't straddle the middle anymore. Right, right. And I think that idea of being able to kind of stay out of politics, stay above it, or, or just be neutral, that's, um, that's foolhardy in an increasingly polarized world, and especially around issues that where there are kind of clear differences of, of perspective. And and I think the idea that businesses should stay out of politics, it that in itself is a political statement because it reflects sure. privilege that oftentimes it isn't shared by by groups that are affected right. by those politics and policies. Yeah. Interesting. Well, we'll talk more about that. I mean, so you've got a new book we're going to be talking about. It's called Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Build Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap. And when we talk today, I sort of look at this from sort of two perspectives. One is certainly brands as we know them, but also as individuals that increasingly there's a sort of feel, felt need to develop our own brands, right? Especially in sales. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's becoming more compelling that as a seller, your buyers, that latest stat I'd seen on a report earlier this year was uh, 82% of customers or buyers look up the salesperson on LinkedIn before they speak with them for the first time. And what are they looking for? Well, they're they're not just looking where you live. I mean, they're looking, who are you? What do you stand for? What's your point of view? Uh, what right. kind of work have you done? Um, that's your brand. And your brand suddenly starts becoming much more important. Right, right. I think it's it's a combination of brand, but also... I guess narcissism. Like humans are are narcissistic people. Everybody's favorite topic is, is themselves. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, as we know in business, it's products don't sell products, people sell products and services. And and we always seek out relationships, I think, when we're when we are looking at something that is bigger than just a 
you know, a low dollar value transaction or something that is merely transactional. If there's that opportunity to connect mm-hmm. around something, I mean, you may say that, you know, nobody wants a relationship with their insurance company, except for maybe insurance salespeople. Right. But when somebody's going to LinkedIn before they take that meeting, or, or maybe in the lead up to that meeting, it's that sense of, well, we say, we tell ourselves, you know, I want to find out more about this person, see what we have in common. It's it's that tendency toward homophily of saying, let me find people more like me, mm-hmm. which is driven by narcissism. It's saying, what do you have in common with me? What? Where do we share common ground? And that's how that's how we build trust, by building rapport, yeah. by saying, I, I can trust you because I can know you by knowing myself. Mm-hmm. And that's it's a powerful thing that plays out all the time on LinkedIn. Well, in the world, right? Just not LinkedIn. I mean, I think that that impetus right, right. that impetus exists, you know, just in human relationships in general. Um, mm. I would, right? I mean, that's how we make friends, right? We find those those things that are right. in common. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. You don't see the, hear the word narcissism used in sort of a positive sense, but um, we are wired to connect. As humans, and it's funny. There's sort of this this pushback in some dimensions. You you read again in the echo chamber of LinkedIn um, mm. about well, you know, these relationships are important. The buyers don't want those relationships. You know, this is, and it's it's like, well, yeah, that's just not the case, right? And I and I think it's it's perhaps even more true as we start seeing more automation coming into our space and sales and business mm-hmm. in general is if you're a human being who's wired to connect and you have a job that's let's say make a decision to buy, you know, certain you know, software system or whatever, yeah, you're gonna want that validation that comes from talking with another human at some point. Uh, that's part of the trust fact that you have to build. Right, right. I think, as you said, you want that validation. That's um, that's a lot of what I was digging into in trustworthy, looking at at how people how people overcome cynicism, how brands can help mm-hmm. people overcome that that inherent cynicism that today undermines so many sales cycles and undermines so much marketing. Because when people become cynical, when they when they wall themselves off to new information, mm-hmm. when they say. I don't need anything else. I I can take it from here. That's when so much marketing falls flat. That's when when so many sales stop. And I think it's by figuring out how to how to bridge that gap, how to how to reach over that wall and dismantle it, that brands become more successful, individuals become more mm-hmm. successful, and that's how we effectively help drive our economy and our society forward. But in order to get there, we have to first establish rapport in order to to get others to trust mm-hmm. us. We need to teach them how they can how they can learn better to trust themselves, trust their own ability to do research, evaluate information, hold themselves open to new information, mm-hmm. and that comes from from starting from that that point of confidence where they feel like new information can help validate their learning process and their ability to make good decisions. Because I think what what we've seen change over the past five years, and this, of course, predates the pandemic, mm-hmm. but as, as cell cycles have slowed down, it's that people are becoming less comfortable with making decisions. They 
they're not in a point anymore where they're good at taking in new information, evaluating it, deciding if it's coming from from a valid and valuable mm-hmm. source. And and the effects of gaslighting that, yeah, maybe started in a political yeah. arena or among media that supported right. those politicians, that now affects every industry. And I think as we figure out how to dismantle that and how to build back in a better way from that, it goes back to how we empower people, how businesses and brands can empower people, fuel their confidence, and then rebuild their trust. Huh, interesting. Lots to unpack in there because you know, you talk about this loss of confidence. And one of the things that's written about uh, one analyst firm in particular, Gartner, talks about this is they always serve, have this updated annual count of how many stakeholders are involved in a dis- purchase decision in a B2B sale. And that number's grown over the last you know, 10 years, mm-hmm. every year. That I don't know, I think it's like 2 million people are involved in every decision or something. But, um, but mm-hmm. it seriously, I went from you know, 5 to 6 to 7. I think it's 17 or 18 was the last number that was out there. Was, mm-hmm. And it's like, well, hmm, is that possibly due to last loss of confidence, right? That as we're less confident, I need more people to surround me to help me make this decision because I'm less confident in my ability, as you described to make that decision? I think some of it is that we want more people. I think also people crave more content. They crave more information to feel like they can make good decisions. And maybe that's to to help them kind of marinate on ideas, to to sort of settle in and move through that cycle of, of discovery and confirmation and validation. The more times they can do that after whether it's putting a product in a shopping cart or or taking in new information from a politician or about about some mm-hmm. sort of social issue, the more times they can do that, the more it it literally deepens those those grooves in our brains. The more we lay down those existing mm-hmm. mental maps to say, yes, this is becoming a part of of what I believe in my very belief structure. So when we enable them to to sit longer with a decision, people can feel more confidence in those decisions. And that runs counter to, to some existing thinking, um, certainly around sales, when we want people to, to maybe make snap decisions because it's a, it's a low-value item. We want them to just put it in the cart and get gone with it. But when we think about longer-term decisions and things that where we do want them to build on relationships – that's where it goes back to bringing more time into the process and more content into the process. And I think that's where we've seen, on the web at least, how the days of brevity and bullets are kind of past us. I and mean, there's been a return to long-form mm-hmm. content. There's been a return to giving people mm-hmm. more tools to evaluate information and consume information. And I think the brands that invest in that, they're empowering their audiences. Right. They're educating their audiences. And that's how they build trust. Yeah, I mean, I sort of think about, yeah, I sort of subscribe to, um, I'm familiar with Herbert Simon's work about the theory of bounded rationality. You know, Mm -hmm. people have three constraints when they make decisions. I call it time, information, understanding. Um, But the net result of those constraints is is that that people make what they call this, you know, satisfied decision, you know, satisfies the requirements and is sufficient Mm -hmm. to meet their desired outcomes and objectives. That's not always compatible with taking a long time, right? If people operate in that mode, oftentimes they say, look, oh, wow, we found something that satisfies us. We've got all these other things we need to do. Um, 
we're going to go ahead and make our good enough decision, right, uh, with this based on that. But they can't do that if there's not trust present, right? This is, a, to me, that sort of requires you to sort of accelerate the process of trust building with your with your buyers because you never know when that moment's going to hit when they say, yeah, this is good enough. Let's do it. Right, right. And I think it what you're describing, I think, also speaks to trust on both mm-hmm. sides of the equation. Is the company making the sale willing to trust the consumer then to say, if they need more, they'll come back? We'd rather that they are an educated shopper, an educated buyer. Mm-hmm. They'll come back to us mm-hmm. when they're ready. And, and I think that that definitely requires a company being willing to trust their audience, that they are smart people as well, um, being willing to, to kind of trust their, their internal sales cycles and targets and whatnot to say, like, this, mm-hmm. is, this is a long game. And we can be comfortable with that. We can be confident in that. I think companies that are able to speak and act from that point of confidence, that's something that you see how it waterfalls through the whole organization from the C-suite down through marketing and sales. And and that definitely affects then how they're able right. to engage with customers. But it's an interesting point, though. It's, 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 you're talking about trusting in the buyers because mm. – I see, and again, I'm talking more in the sales space and and so on, is the the content and the positioning and the messaging that goes out, oftentimes certainly in uh, many companies. It seems increasingly like it's sort of the variety of the sky is falling, right? Mm. Is everything's really bad. Uh, and I certainly see that in certain software segments that I'm very familiar with is like, yeah, it's never been harder to do this, right? It's never been blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, that seems like the lack of trust in mm. in the buyer when you say that. So one of my favorite examples, I think, to the counter, and, and I bring this up because I think, yes, there are, there are many examples of companies that are saying, no, we got to just push this ahead, do this quickly, don't let them get away. I think for as many examples of that kind of behavior that we see, there are also examples at the other end of the spectrum mm. of companies that, that are willing to to invest in the long game. And, and they've been playing that game for a while, maybe for many years. One of my favorite examples of that is, is Crutchfield Electronics. And yep. I spent some time with their team there getting to know when I was writing Trustworthy, I wanted to see brands that that are building trust, that are successful in dismantling cynicism and empowering their audiences. What do they do? Is there are there common patterns or there is there a repeatable framework there that mm-hmm. any business can can buy into? And Crutchfield stood out to me because they're they're an electronics retailer. They have photography equipment, computer equipment, um, home audio equipment. And They sell that, but they also sell empowerment. And the way they do that is by investing in a lot of long-form copy. There's there's video on their site where you can see how how people there, product testers, are dismantling products, trying to install them, the, the trials and tribulations they're having around that. So if you're somebody that's more of a visual learner, you can just fall into their video galleries for mm-hmm. hours and probably days on mm-hmm. end. And if you're somebody that's that you get more information through reading, they've got really, really long pages on their site doing product comparisons and reviews and all. And what they find by looking at the site analytics is that when people get to the end of those long pages, 
they click to keep reading on more pages. And what they have seen is that the more information they offer, the more they're willing to invest in educating their consumer so that people become smarter about their products, Mm -hmm. about their options, Mm -hmm. the more loyal their audience is and the better their sales are. Better in part because the rate of product returns is far lower than they would see otherwise. And they've been doing this kind of since the early days of the internet and before. It used to be that people would get their catalog in the mail. And I spoke to someone there, um, his name was Steve, who he started out there writing catalog copy and reviewing products, writing about them in the catalog. And he's been there 27 years and now he's doing it all on on their website. So they're investing in people that get to know the products as well. And one thing that their brand manager said to me is that, you know, people may come to us saying like, I need to buy a new camera. What's a what's a, a digital SLR? I don't even know what SLR stands for. What what do I do for different lenses? And by the time that person is willing to buy the product, is able to buy the product, it's more or less a no-brainer for them. They've become smarter mm-hmm. with asking their questions. They can ask better questions. They see a lower rate of product returns because people spend so much time. But I mean, going back to your earlier question, it requires companies being being willing to to give people the content and give them the time and space to spend that time to sit with it without seeing you know a million and one pop ups of saying like hey you abandoned this in the shopping cart or you ready to buy that yeah in the B two E world it's you know having somebody call you or email you put you in a cadence and and bombard you uh, you know hey yeah. they've been to our website three times they download two pieces of content their lead score is X off we go with trigger cadence um yeah it's interesting you talk about you know long form content because i i agree is you want to be able to educate um potential customers about that but you talk about in the book is that it's really important and i think this is a place where in the b2b world oftentimes there's failures is they don't moderate that content as they move further down the funnel toward a purchase decision um you talk Mm. Need to becoming uh, more clear, more concise, less uh, well, not not inject uncertainty into the process by by saying too much as you go further down the the funnel. So, how do you sort of mig- make that migration, if you will? Well, I think one of the opportunities that we have as consumers and as um, as customers and as business people become more more well versed in what we're trying to sell, is that the opportunity we fa- we see an opportunity for better, more high quality, more productive conversations mm-hmm. with those people. And kind of going back to what we were initially talking about with how we establish those those relationships with the person on the other end of the phone there's a better opportunity for a relationship when that person is more educated about the subject matter, when they can ask better questions mm-hmm. about it. Suddenly, it's no longer you know, your, your potential customer that you're talking with, but somebody that's become kind of a colleague on equal footing, where you're able to, to start to bring out the, the jargon of the industry and establish rapport in that way. And I think that's an opportunity for many businesses, especially in the B2B context, because as your customer is becoming that much smarter, now you can have those better conversations with them and dig more into the nuance of what you're offering and and learn more about their Mm -hmm. needs so that when it's time finally to, to make that sale, you know and they know that their confidence in it 
is entirely appropriate, that you've come to this kind of conclusion together. And and that makes for that much stronger a relationship and more loyalty in that relationship because you're on the same page. You can use all the same lingo because it's their, it's their vocabulary mm-hmm. too. Yeah, that oftentimes, unfortunately, falls victim to sort of the set process and the way we have to sell, right? And um, right. yeah. Yeah, if only. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, oftentimes in sales, there's sort of this refusal to acknowledge that that the customer has gotten smarter and the customer has gotten more educated about what they want and that the needs they expressed at the beginning may have morphed because they have more information. And not just from us, from everybody right. else they're talking to as well. And it's oftentimes sort of a tripping point for sellers is because they assume, since I asked those questions early on, the answers are still valid now. Right, and I think this then becomes yeah a big barrier to trust oftentimes with customers because like well you're not really listening anymore and you don't really understand what it is that we really need to accomplish and what's the most important thing to us so mm, yeah you're probably not the one. One of the um, one of the other examples that I was very very delighted and honored to dig into in researching trustworthy. Um, is the example that MailChimp offers its mm-hmm. audience. So they started out as a small business serving other small businesses, um, mostly yep. email marketing, but then they eventually moved into e-commerce. And now they're not a small business yep. anymore. It's something like 60% of the world's email marketing moves through MailChimp. And as they've evolved, their audience has evolved too. It's become more varied. There are some people that turn to them for their businesses just for mm-hmm. e-commerce support. Um, but then they've also got their legacy customers that have been with them a right. long time. And they want to make sure that they never alienate that audience by rolling out new features and new products and all. And in talking with them, one of the things that they shared is that as they have evolved over time, they've paid a lot of attention to how they maintain a voice that is consistent and cohesive, but also familiar so that People always have that confidence that when they're when they're using any tools from MailChimp or interacting with them, that they know what they're doing, that this is a platform mm-hmm. they know, even as it's evolved over time. And I think for um, for business users, for marketers to to always have that confidence so that they can turn to, to their senior leadership and ensure that it is still a good investment, that's really, really mm-hmm. important. There's a lot on the line there. And they talk about how they've also developed their voice with with kind of more variation and nuance to vary it appropriately in right. terms of tone for the different audiences right. that they engage. I think that's a really valuable lesson for many brands that you don't have to be monolithic to be consistent. And to your point, as your audience is getting smarter, for MailChimp, you know, maybe they're talking to a marketer that has come over from from a competitor or just somebody that's mm-hmm. been in the business 20 or 30 years then they can use more jargon. They can speak to them at a different level. They might be sharing the same sort of information as they offer more of a somebody that's mm-hmm. new to their platform, but they can do it in a tone that's more sophisticated so that every step of the way, regardless of their audience, businesses should always be meeting that audience where they are, even if it means meeting them where they are to help them move to the level of sophistication and and kind of marketing wisdom and maturity as to where they need them to go. They're always first meeting them where they are and Mm -hmm. ensuring they have that, that sort of verbal and visual rapport. Well, I mean, I 
was thinking about that as as I was going through the book. I said, just think about as it applies to individual sellers because you know they are reflecting a brand uh, that's their own these days, but also partially mm-hmm. the company they work for. And yeah, as you talked about voice, um, you know, having this identifiable personality. Yeah, I would say most sellers aren't really conscious of that. And but they are out talking to all these different people, uh, and yeah, the tone, the 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 way they communicate has a big impact. Uh, and probably don't think about, well, I'm talking to this person, vary it because I'm talking to this person that has more experience, this person has less experience. Uh, yeah, we tend to be these days in sales much more focused on a process, and we'll bring content to bear on them. And I don't think it oftentimes distinguishes, differentiates based on who the real individual is that's that's reading it and consuming it. Yeah, and yet isn't that core to consultative so, selling, right? uh, to con- the, the consultative <laughs> sales process, being able to kind of effectively mirror the the needs of, of the person at the other end uh, of that communication with with what you can offer to meet their needs. I think that very much applies in the context yeah. of communication as well. Well, yeah. I mean, when I look at the trust gaps that exist in, in B2B sales, the, the first and biggest one is just not understanding what's the most important thing the buyer is trying to accomplish. And, mm-hmm. and then everything sort of flows from there because you can have great content but if the buyer is not feeling understood, then I said you've, the trust right. you need isn't going to exist, and everything sort of falls apart from there. And this is this is I think maybe it just flows from the fact that we sort of turn trust into such a cliche in sales, right? Um, mm-hmm. And maybe really don't understand exactly what it means. I mean, you you have an interesting thing. You talk about how you can actually quantify trust, and I thought that was very. Very clever. Stephen M. R. Covey talks about how to quantify trust and the speed of trust as well. I mean, it's not some, you know, ephemeral thing. It's actually something that that you can quantify. Right, right. That that also takes to a degree vulnerability. And mm-hmm. and that's something that I write about a lot in Trustworthy because I think, you know, like transparency and authenticity and trust. It's something that we fling around with abandon. You, you can't have a, a oh, meeting absolutely. in marketing departments without talking about empathy uh, and the many things that that can yeah, mean. Don't, yeah, don't. <laughs> yeah, don't trigger me. We won't go one. down that road. Yeah, I mean, well, just yeah, because you know, hey, three primary types of, of empathy, you know, generally, right? This people people talk about, and we always refer to perhaps the most or the least useful form in sort of our conversations when we have in, in marketing and sales, mm-hmm. right? So I can, I, I can feel what you're feeling. It's like, well, yeah, it's not really useful in the big context of things. What's useful is cognitive empathy, which says, look, I understand why you feel the way you do. Thus, I can take action to try to help you. But if I just feel right. your feelings, right. it's like, eh, yeah, that doesn't really do much for me. Yeah, so, you know, Paul, Bloom, Paul Bloom's premise in his book, Against Empathy. It, it takes a degree of hubris, too, to say that the only way I can relate to you is if I can relate your experiences to my own experiences, oh, yeah. because we haven't shared all experiences. But I think if we can start with a point of compassion, that allows mm-hmm. us to get back to that that issue of relating to, in B2B context, kind of relating to the person at the other end of the phone. If we can first establish rapport where I can engage you on an emotional level, 
Then when I have that emotional interest, then I can move it into an educational context. Mm -hmm. But before I can relate to your biggest goal, your biggest business need, let me first figure out, like, what's keeping you up at night? What What is stressing you out? Are you looking for somebody that can be reliable and tried and true and speak with a really reassuring voice? Or are you looking for somebody that can express that they're very creative and innovative in terms of approaching your problems and can be a partner in that mm-hmm. way? And I think it's that kind of, of personal branding that, as you said, you can't not communicate. To, to quote Paul Witzlawick, you can't not communicate. And and salespeople are sometimes unconsciously communicating what they stand for, their brands, their personal brands, as well as ideals and vision of the brands that they represent. And I think if they could just put the brakes on first to, to first figure out, well, what do I need to communicate about my values, about mm-hmm about kind of my personal communication goals and personal message architecture in this next meeting, I think that helps to build rapport and lay the foundation for trust. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the inability to be conscious about the actions they take and have a point of view. Because everything tends to, you know, I think it's part of this, this sort of anti-expertise, anti-experts, you know, movement we've seen. This is certainly... It's not just the last five years. It existed before. I mean, Tom Nichols' mm-hmm. book, The Death of Expertise, came out, well, before that. Um, is It's like everybody wants to become vanilla. It's like they're afraid to sort of stand for something mm-hmm. and for fear of, of perhaps alienating. And the point you made is, is absolutely true. It's not a, just as a brand, but as an individual in your own brand, as a seller. You have to you have to know what you stand for. You have to know what your values are. You have to express those, and through how you sell and how you interact with people, that becomes your strength, not your weakness. But what we what we have right. is right. currently is is a lot of vanilla and very little distinction, and it doesn't help doesn't help yeah. your buyers. I mean, the point of having a brand is not just to help yourself; it's to help your buyers make a decision as well. Right, because it's that distinct voice. And, and how you make your values visible that tells them who you are and how you are. But you're right. I think that um, that level of vulnerability is risky. And you do run the risk of, of alienating people within your audience, potential customers. But you also face the potential reward of attracting an even greater mm-hmm. audience, when brands make their values visible, you know, we say they're putting themselves out there. And, and yeah, they may lose some customers in the process, but it also helps differentiate them so that they're no longer just competing on, on price and maybe product selection, but now they're able to tell their audience, this is who we are. If you're like mm-hmm. us, Red Rover, Red Rover, come mm-hmm. on over. And that's how frequently people find brands that they may not have really noticed before right. because suddenly they realize, oh, your politics align with my politics. And and we've seen that play out a lot over the past few years. But I think going back to what you were also saying about kind of that, that trend away from expertise, like we've seen how how people have turned away from expertise, whether it's in the form of government or public health officials or or news media or maybe brands that they thought they knew, and that's in part because those organizations, especially on on the business side of things, 
they've changed as well. When when brands play fast and loose with with things like visual branding, uh, editorial tone of voice, when when they're constantly shifting what they look like, what they sound like, that can be really really a problem for a lot of people because it undermines their mm-hmm. confidence that they know what this organization stands for. It undermines their their sort of trust in themselves and their own knowledge. And right now, in a time of of so much upheaval in our economy, in our society, around so many social issues, now is not the time for for a big rebranding. Now is the time to offer your audience consistency and a cohesive presence so that they can maintain that confidence. Hmm. And I think as we've seen people shift away from expertise, then, you know, everyone was kind of turning to turning to their filter bubbles, people just like me in rating restaurants and in suggesting the next news story to read. And that was all fine and dandy until we became aware of those filter bubbles and, and how algorithms were mm-hmm. driving so many of them. And so that's caused people to turn more inward, kind of gets back to that, that issue around how narcissism drives so many of our choices. But as people turn inward and, and say, well, I'll just go with my gut, what, what feels right probably is what is right. I, I don't need more information. That's when they put up that wall of cynicism and then discover that the gut instincts that they used to have have been depleted and diminished by gaslighting, by, by organizations and politicians telling us not to believe the, the wisdom of mm-hmm. our own experiences. So we're in a tough place. But, but I also think that people in, in sales that help manifest a brand, people in marketing that, that help design mm-hmm. that brand, and writers and, and designers like the people of, of right. brands and brainstorms, we're also in a good position to to help get out of that that bad place, to help dig out of that hole, because we know how to empower our audiences. So much of what we do is educating them and helping them to make better purchasing decisions. So we know how to do this. And that's, I think, our opportunity to kind of move things hmm. forward. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I sort of think about this as, you know, is our, per the conversation we had earlier, are people really trying to make better decisions or this trying to make good enough decisions and move on because one of the things that that is sort of the heart of a lot of what you see in marketing and sales these days is look everybody's overwhelmed right everybody we're talking to is overwhelmed there's so much noise out there mm-hmm. um, and so many sources of information competing for you know, slices of their attention how do we get them to focus on what we're trying to do to help them and and yeah, I, I, there are some organizations that are the very they think we're trying to get our customers to make the best possible decision. It's like, yeah, I don't think your customers want to make the best possible decision. They got too much going on. They just want to make a good decision and move on to the next one. And I think trust becomes very paramount yes. in that because I like, I like to say I like to say you're the if you're the first to trust with the customer. Your odds of winning the business go up substantially. Right, right. And I think also if you're the first to to help the customer learn how to trust themselves. I think it's that people want to make good decisions, mm. maybe good enough decisions. But they want to make good decisions yes. and then feel good about yes. the decisions they make. They feel like, 
yeah, I had enough information right. that's that's going to be the the right product for me when it arrives. It's fine, or yeah. I'm happy I signed that contract. This is going to be, it's going to be good. Nobody's right. going to smack my hand for it later on. And I think being able to move forward with that sense of of mm-hmm. trust in the relationship, trust in the service provider is great, but it needs to come because you've taught the customer how mm-hmm. to trust themselves. You've given them that sense that. You had enough information to make a complete and good decision. You made the best decision you could with the information you had at the time. Yeah. Well, I think it gets back to making the customer feel understood. Right. And oftentimes, when you read reports about why do B2B buyers, you know, at sea level or whatever, they're interacting with salespeople, say that they're dissatisfied with that process and the experience is because the number one answer is, I didn't feel like they understood what we were trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And yeah, because you know, sellers are, I got my process. We're heads down. These things have to happen sort of in this order. We're going to push you forward. And what the buyer's saying is, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you don't understand it, there's a possibility I don't understand it. Right? I mean, this is, this is part right, of right. the processes. Maybe I don't fully understand what it is I need to do because you don't understand it either. Uh, and I think it works both in directions, in both directions, excuse me. I think that that issue around feeling misunderstood and wondering, does the other person understand me if I don't understand my own needs yet? I think that speaks to like a fundamental challenge that, that we see in in sales, but then also in a lot of other kind of professional communication, in public health communication, mm-hmm. where right. organizations and individuals are so afraid to admit when when they don't know something, when we don't know something, when we don't have complete mm-hmm. information, we are we are so worried about admitting that because it feels like admitting defeat rather than admitting and acknowledging progress and revealing the process. And and I think we've seen that play out a lot, certainly over the past year within the context of public health, right. where where different officials in in, in different municipalities took to the mic and every time they they offered platitudes and affirmations that that people could easily shoot down they didn't build trust i mean maybe in the short term they they got headlines of saying everything's going to be fine we've got this all under control but that didn't last very long i think the the public health officials the the cities that did the best at earning trust mm-hmm. at building a long-term trust and empowering the, uh, their audiences, where where the stakes really, really matter in this case, were the ones that were able to come to the mic and say, here's what we know, but here's what we don't yet know about the pandemic, about this virus. Whoa. But here's what we're doing to figure that out. Here's the ongoing research. And being willing to, uh, to share that kind of process, it's no different when a business says, you know, we've had some maybe some product problems with with delivery or with manufacturing. Here's why there's been a slowdown. Let us be the first to come out and, and call out our own problems to bring our audience closer. Then we're going to let you know what's going on and let you know what we do know, what we don't know and what we're doing to figure this out. I mean, that is that the nature of of public accountability. That's the nature of of a good apology. Well, but. That's where businesses have so many problems. Yeah, no, excuse me. I mean, the difficulty is in all those cases, whether it's a you know, public health officials or corporate executive or individual salesperson, is 
yeah, they don't, it's ego, right? They don't want to feel less than, they don't want to feel inadequate. Um, and it seems like certainly in the business side that drives so much, right, is this inability to admit what you don't know, which to your point is actually a strength, right? It's a trust building step. Um, right. But right. it's looked at, unfortunately, from many people's eyes as, oh, well, they think I don't know anything. Well, they don't expect you to know everything. So, but if you come say, yeah, I, huh, I hadn't heard that before. Tell me more about that. Help me understand what it is that you're concerned about. Wow. Often I said, our customer yeah. here, somebody asked that. Suddenly that becomes a big thing. And it's an opportunity to then build a stronger relationship Absolutely. because you're communicating more. You're saying, spend more time helping me help you. And, and that's a tremendous thing. And, um, that was something that I saw play out across a lot of organizations mm-hmm. over the past few years. I think for for organizations that waded into different social issues only to realize that that the problems of Me Too or or the challenges around policing and Black Lives Matter that they wanted to address, those problems existed within their own organizations mm-hmm. too. I think we've seen how that sort of vulnerability plays out there where sometimes those those different businesses have to stop and say, we learned something new. We don't have all the answers, but here's what we know. Right. Here's what we don't yet know, and here's how we're going to work to improve things. Um, I had the opportunity to talk with with folks at at TED about how they've handled things there on a really massive scale when when they've encountered issues. Um, several years back, they had problems with with a few talks that the different people in the science community were were kind of flagging and saying wait, the, the science here is kind of suspect. Mm-hmm. This has not been peer-reviewed. Right. Or in other cases, calling out different talks and saying, this was fine when you first published it, but it's woefully outdated right. now and it's no longer factually accurate. What are you going to do about right. it? And so, Ted, the, the folks there were in the position of saying, maybe we've screwed up or, or maybe we just don't know how to deal with this. We've, we've recognized this problem and here's what we know but we don't yet know how best to move forward. We don't have all the answers. And they took that as an opportunity to gather many of their many of their most ardent critics, many people in their community of, of critics, and um, as well as content creators to say, well, what would you do? How do you think we should handle right. this? Let's figure out this out together. Let's prototype in public. And as a result, by pulling their audience closer, they were able to to make some of those critics into then their most fervent champions. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful thing when a business has that opportunity or maybe can recognize that that sort of problem right. really is an opportunity yeah. to build trust. Oh, absolutely. All right. Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but and we didn't begin to touch on a lot of things I want to talk about. I, your whole section on abstraction I wanted to get into, but maybe we'll have, to have you back and talk about that because I think it's that's something that's really critical for, for sellers in terms of how they – Tell their story, right? And sure. uh, and maintain fidelity to the facts. And maintain fidelity to the facts while you're doing mm-hmm. abs- being abstract. Um, so yeah, we'll have you back. We'll we'll talk about that. But uh, yeah, thanks for joining me. And so, if people want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? You can find me at appropriateinc.com/trustworthy. Also on Twitter at mbloomstein and um, and trustworthy is available wherever you, you like to find your business books. Excellent. Yeah, it's a good book. People should go out and buy that. Uh, Margo, thanks for stopping by. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, 
so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Margot Bloomstein, for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement, with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for your help with that, and thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales, we're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.